First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Paul leaves Timothy with some final charges, instructions. The first is directed towards the rich. Command them not to be high-minded or trust in uncertain riches. And the second is to reinforce Paul's earlier warnings to Timothy. Guard the gospel. Guide the people. Some of you may or may not remember how the letter began. Paul reminded Timothy that he has been entrusted with this thing that we call the ministry. That took place in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The Lord will enable or empower to do what is, needs to be done according to Paul in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul has given instructions about prayer. He has brought attention to modesty, to every manner of conduct. Paul has given guidance and charges to Timothy about what it means to be a good minister, what it means to be a godly minister, what it means to be a growing minister. All of that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Paul has instructed older saints, widows, church leaders, servants, troublemakers, and now the rich, and even the educated, in verses 20 and 21. So he begins with a word to the wealthy. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You might think, finally, something that doesn't apply to me. I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich. Maybe you grew up in circumstances that were less than ideal. Some of you grew up in even profound poverty and you knew that that wasn't going to be the rest of your life. But the truth is, if you live on more than $2 a day, if you have access to clean drinking water, if you 
have running water, if you flushed a toilet sometime this morning, if you have cell phone access or the internet, you are wealthy compared to the majority of the people living on the planet Earth. Half of the world's wealth is concentrated in less than 1% of the world's population. We can think of that statistic in another way. 20% of the global population possesses 90% of the global wealth. The United States represents about 5% of the world's total population, yet produces and consumes some 70% of the world's goods and services. And so the Lord Jesus warned that it's possible to be rich in this present age, but not towards God in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. But let me be as clear as I possibly can. Americans, I believe with all of my heart, are both rich and generous. There's a big difference between socialism and what the Bible says. According to the Bible, what's mine is yours. According to socialism, what's yours is mine. And if you can't see the difference between those two, see me after the service. The word command carries the weight of a military command, but it also carries the weight of elements of tenderness. It means to appeal or to beseech. In the right circumstance, it even could mean to beg, depending upon the context. In a sense, Paul is commanding Timothy to approach the rich in love and then issue an urgent appeal there also seems to be an expectation that the person will do exactly what the Lord commands or requires. We're to avoid pride. We're to embrace humility. We're not to be haughty or high-minded. According to Paul, generosity makes it easy to hold on to eternity. The next phrase literally reads, to the rich, do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. So we're to avoid pride, we're to embrace humility, and again, we're not to be haughty or high-minded. That word may be unfamiliar to some of you, but it means to exaggerate your own sense of self-importance based on the material provision that's been made for you. The expression uncertain riches occurs only here in the Greek New Testament. And it, it's meant to convey a warning of sorts. In the grand scheme of things, we're to find our hope, we're to find our confidence, we're to find our provision in the living God. So in the category of things marked uncertain, 
Paul invites us to place riches at the top of the list. Many of you know that a hurricane is bearing down on Bermuda at this very moment, making its way to Florida. It's a category five hurricane. Many people have spent their life accumulating riches. And I guarantee you that hundreds of millions of dollars are going to be wiped away in the next 24 hours. It seems crazy to remind you that I put things in stark and dramatic categories. Now Paul is putting things into two stark and dramatic categories. Those things that are uncertain and those things that are certain. In the category of the things that are uncertain, he puts at the top of the list riches. In the category of things that he finds certain, it's the living God. The living God is the source of all things that are certain. And so you should take great comfort in the fact that Paul reminds Timothy that God has given us richly all things to enjoy. Some of you had no idea that that phrase was even in the Bible. What? God has given us all things richly, things to enjoy? You mean my life, my children, the grace and mercy, the provision that he's made for me? The answer is yes. But we can't neglect the warning. In what ways are riches uncertain? I want to remind you of something. On the surface, riches seem valuable, desirable, even dependable. But according to the New Testament, according to the whole Bible for that matter, with wealth comes danger. And the danger is the temptation to trust the wealth, to rely on the wealth, to depend upon the wealth rather than to trust in, rely on, and depend upon the Lord. So the danger in believing the lie that the wealthy really are more beautiful, more valuable, more desirable than the poor is the failure to see things from God's perspective. We know the desire for wealth seems hardwired into our culture because we live in a culture that produces so much. It generates so much. It invites us to consume so much. Someone likened riches to drinking seawater. It doesn't quench thirst. Drinking seawater only increases thirst. Wealth makes promises it can never keep. A very wealthy person uh, was seen on a late night show and he had tremendous wealth and the host said to him, how much is enough? And the person said, just a little more. Sometimes wealth has the undesirable capacity of increasing anxiety. 
It doesn't decrease, it increases anxiety. And the pursuit of wealth sometimes places people in the awkward position of obtaining wealth in ways that are clearly not honoring to God. So the preoccupation and the pursuit of wealth sometimes has this tendency to control us, to manipulate us. Don't get me wrong, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. It's important that we understand that most of us have to work. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we're to take all things into consideration concerning who God is and what God wants. So Paul adds that wonderful statement, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. And so the wealth aren't invited to feel guilty or ashamed or condemned for their wealth. Paul points out God has given us all things richly to enjoy, including material provisions. Riches are a gift from God. And so we have to find a balance between honoring the Lord with our wealth, self-enjoyment, and then bringing much needed relief to a broken world and to broken people. The rich have every right to enjoy life, enjoy wealth. But then Paul adds verse 18, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. You see, this is different than compel them to do good. So what's the best strategy to combat pride and selfishness and high-mindedness? What's the best strategy to eliminate the false dependence that comes from relying on wealth? According to Paul, it's to do good. It's to exercise generosity. It's to share sacrificially. Think about what Paul is saying. Find ways to do good. Find ways to be generous. Why? Not only is it the best antidote to pride, but it's been my experience, and I think the experience of many people, that generosity creates more generosity, which creates more generosity. Generosity is more than simply giving resources. It's even more than giving goods or services. It's even more than giving money. It includes giving yourself. It includes being reminded of just who you are and what God has given to you and the unique gifts and callings that God has placed in your life. Doing good promotes community. It also generates compassion. It also creates an environment of mercy. So a willingness to share strikes this effective blow against selfishness and self-centeredness. And then we're disciplined to live with less so that others can have more. Look closely at that phrase, ready to give, willing 
to share. Paul uses a word in ready to give and willing to share that's closely related to the Greek word that's often translated in the New Testament, community or fellowship. It's a compound word. You know the word, perhaps you've heard it, koinonia. This is the word koinonakos. It's a word that incorporates communion, fellowship, community, but it incorporates the idea of willingness. Our word voluntary or volunteer is somewhat linked to this idea. Being rich in good works doesn't always increase the bottom line on your financial statement, but in the long run, according to the Bible, it isn't what you possess that's an asset. You're the asset. You are God's treasure. And you are God's treasure chest. And so in verse 19, it says, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Oddly enough, I think that this might arguably be the key concept. Generosity makes it is the first step in getting rid of selfishness. But it also makes it easy to hold on to eternity. In what sense? Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. This is the strategy to combat pride. This is the strategy to undo the false dependence upon wealth. Do good, exercise generosity, share sacrificially. Again, think of what Paul is saying. Find ways to do good. Why? Because generosity generates more generosity. Why? Generosity is more than simply giving. Why? Because it means you're going to generate community, compassion, and mercy. And in verse 19, he says, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. This verse should startle you. What exactly is this verse saying? Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. The rich are literally building foundations in heaven that they may lay hold on eternal life. The, the phrase can't mean you get to buy your way into heaven. That can't be the meaning of the phrase. So what does it mean? What does it mean to lay hold on eternal life? I'm going to suggest to you that what Paul is basically saying is that whether you're rich or even poor for that matter, the kingdom benefits from generosity. The benefit that comes with people, ministering to people, 
the phrase storing up, look what it says, storing up for themselves a good foundation. That phrase storing up could be translated literally amassing a treasure, while foundation is a reference to a fund. The idea seems to be that the rich need not be concerned about receiving a return on their earthly investment, but rather on the riches it generates both on the earth and in heaven. In a very real sense, Paul is giving spiritual wealth management advice. I want to pause and I want that to sink in. Paul is giving spiritual wealth management advice. What is he saying? Lay up wealth that lasts forever. How do you lay up wealth that lasts forever? You begin to care about what God cares about. You begin to care about what Jesus cares about. So in short, there's five quick admonitions. Number one, don't be high-minded. Number two, don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. Number three, do trust in God. Number four, do good, be rich in good works. Number five, do not lay up treasures in heaven. So what does it mean? Again, we backtrack just for a moment. What does it mean to be haughty or high-minded in verse 17? It translates a very long Greek word. That's so many letters that it has a prefix, a root word, and a suffix. And it's such a big, long word, it's found only in this particular place in the Greek New Testament. There was a more common word that was used in ordinary conversation that they would use megalophroneo. Megalophroneo uh, was a word that was used to, to describe someone who had a, an exaggerated sense of self-importance or what some people have called the pride of possession, which has caused some scholars to speculate if Paul adopted this new word that he's used, it's to communicate this idea in a fresh way. The word that he uses, I'll use it, hypsleophroneo. What does that mean? It's a word that could very well be translated the pride of possessions. The temptation elevates the rich to believe that they really are morally or spiritually superior to the poor by virtue of the possession of their riches. One wise rabbi said, haughtiness, same word, towards men is rebellion to God, unquote. What it's saying is that pride, self-promotion, self-exaggeration, makes us artificial. Humility makes us real. Spurgeon used to say that pride is a stab at deity. It's an attack on the glory of God. In what sense? In the sense that pride insists that we have something. We have something to glory in and of ourselves. The rich face the danger 
of thinking that wealth makes them truly different in the eyes of God. And according to the Bible, nothing could be further from the truth. Augustine wrote, we all bow down before wealth. Wealth is that which the multitude of men pay instinctive homage. They measure happiness by wealth. By wealth, they measure respectability. It is a homage resulting from a profound faith that with wealth he may do all things, unquote. This is from the fourth century. This isn't unique to our culture or to our society or to our circumstances. Thomas Brooks rightly said, quote, there are three things that earthly riches can never do. They can never satisfy divine justice. They can never pacify divine wrath, nor can they ever quiet a guilty conscience. Let me put that in the modern vernacular. There are three things that the earthly riches can never do. They can never satisfy divine justice. That means you can never pay God enough money to make your sin go away. You can never generate enough wealth in order to make it go away. They can never pacify divine wrath. In other words, no amount of money will ever undo the day of judgment nor can they quiet a guilty conscience. No amount of money can ever make wrongdoing disappear from the surface of our soul. No wonder D.L. Moody used to say, quote, God sends no one away except those who are full of themselves." Once again, we're reminded that of all of the things that you could choose to trust, wealth should be at the bottom of the list. And of all the things that you could choose to trust, it makes perfect sense to put God at the top of the list. So how in the world, how in the world do you open this account in heaven? How in the world do you lay up treasure in heaven? Some of you have a checking account. Some of you have a savings account. Some of you have a retirement account. The way we open our account in heaven is by trusting Jesus as Lord. The moment that you turn from your sin and you receive him as your savior, the moment that you are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, your account opens in heaven. And so you trust him. You love him. You serve him. You submit to him. And because you reject the uncertainty of riches, you also grow in an ever-increasing trust of the Lord. We trust our past to God's mercy. We trust our present to God's love. We trust our future to God's providence. I stole that unashamedly from Augustine. We trust our past to God's mercy. 
We trust our, our present to God's love. We trust our future to God's providence. Spurgeon warned, quote, trust Jesus and you're saved. Trust self and you're lost. And so we trust him. And what does that do? It immediately begins to generate a heart of generosity and sacrificial giving. We use our wealth to do what's good. Now remember, no amount of good deeds can make us good people. We have to be good in order to do good. How does that happen? It happens the moment that you receive Christ. Because the presence of Jesus in your heart and in your life begins the process whereby goodness dwells in you. That's why Paul elsewhere writes that may all goodness dwell inside of you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Apparently, whatever it means and however it takes place, Again, there's two kinds of things in the world. Things that last and things that don't last. If it can be bought, if it can be sold, if it can be fabricated, if it can be assembled or disassembled, then that means that it probably won't last. So what will last? You and the person sitting next to you and the person that God entrusts to you. There's, Jonathan talked about it. That the only thing that you can tangibly take with you into heaven are the men and women, the people whose hearts you've invested in. And so he gives the warning to the wealthy, but he also gives an admonition to the wise. Look what it says in verse 20. Oh, Timothy! Guard what is committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge by professing it, that is, the profane and idle babblings and contradictions. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. In this chapter, Paul has told Timothy, flee evil. Follow good in verse 11. Fight the good fight of faith in verse 12. Faithfully fulfill your ministry in verses 13 and 14. Warn the rich in verses 17 through 19. Don't trust riches. Use it to help others. Reject godless philosophies, he's saying in verse 20. So now Timothy's told, guard, keep, retain, everything that you've been entrusted with. What are these priceless privileges? Paul has talked about it throughout the book. The sound words of truth, the gospel of God, 
the message of grace, salvation through faith in Jesus. Let nothing cause you to deviate from the gospel message and the grace of God. That's what he's saying. Let nothing cause you to deviate from the gospel message. What is that? Human beings are sinners in need of a savior. Remember what the gospel message is? God created everything. Human beings fell. In order to have a right relationship with God in Christ, God himself is going to have to send his son to die on a cross and rise from the dead so that you can experience hope. Paul doesn't reject knowledge. What he's rejecting is the so-called superior claims of the false teachers and their false teaching. Paul rejects the useless speculations made with insufficient evidence that reject the revelation that God has made us in his image and that the revelation that he's given us is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And now we understand exactly what faith is. Remember, faith is the evidence of things unseen. Faith, in effect, I, I thought about this, a, a person I was talking to him on my radio program on Friday. The person rightly said, faith is believing the revelation of God in Christ. And that's exactly right. Over and over again, I've said to you, I've reminded you, we're living in a world that rejects the revelation of God in Christ. Revelation of the Bible, revelation about creation, revelation about sinful circumstances, revelation about what it means to be human, revelation of what's gone wrong. And so Paul asks Timothy to reject useless speculations that have insufficient evidence, particularly those claims that re reject the revelation of God in Christ. What does that mean? Jesus isn't really the Lord. He didn't really die on the cross for your sin. He didn't really rise from the dead for your justification. Guess what? There's no such thing as heaven, and there's certainly no such thing as hell. That's the world in which you live. You live in a world where there's going to be a concentrated effort to say, guess what? It is a fact that you descended from lower life forms. Guess what? It's not a fact. The fact that they use the word fact means that they don't understand the meaning of the word fact. Is it true that all truth is God's truth? John Piper in a reflection on the academic slogan writes, quote, all truth is God's truth, but all truth exists to display more of God and awaken more love for God. This means that knowing truth and knowing it as God's truth is not a virtue unless it awakens desire and delight in us for God's truth, unquote. He's exactly right. When people tell you that there's such a thing as truth, that rejects the truth about the Bible, then that means you are being, let me put it a different way. 
you're having a conversation with a false teacher. What Paul has faithfully given to Timothy, Timothy must now faithfully impart to those who are in his charge. This means that the message has to be absent corruption, absent pollution, absent perversion. The essentials of the faith and the gospel must not be twisted. It must not be perverted. It must not be polluted. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy is that we are both possessors of the faith and we are trustees of the faith. That means you have faith, but you also have a sacred charge to impart that faith to others. Timothy was to give to others what was given to him. Listen carefully. Exactly as he received it. How did he receive it? By faith. But that isn't faith absent facts. It isn't faith absent the historical reality that a real Jesus came both in time and space to live the perfect life and die on the cross and rise from the dead. And now, dear friends, this letter and its instruction has been given to you. Paul entrusted it to Timothy. Jonathan and I have entrusted it to you. We have gone word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book, presenting it to you in context. Now it's up to you to entrust it to others. Guard the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 2, 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with this gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. This was Paul's way of saying, I didn't sugarcoat it for you. And I didn't do it to get rich. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul will later write, And the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach it to others over and over again. I've reminded you of what a faithful witness is. If you're in law enforcement, in order to find a true witness, the person has to have, number one, a knowledge of the facts, and number two, a reputation for honesty, and then number three, they have to be willing to tell the truth. And so Paul gives a series of descriptors. False teaching is profane and vain babbling in verse 20. The word profane means common, irreverent, godless. The word vain means empty, meaningless. We could even use the term empty voices. Empty voices. To me, that's the perfect title for the endless talk show hosts who comment on everything imaginable. People who talk on radio or television or the internet, late night shows, early morning shows, endless, fruitless conversations on moral, spiritual, political, 
cultural circumstances, but they don't or rarely seem to get to the point about what the Bible says. Paul, I'm thinking, is using a term that really means godless chatter. The world offers endless conversation on what really doesn't matter. Godlessness is what matters most to the profane. Profane means outside the sacred. The word contradictions in verse 20 are those words contrary to Christ, contrary to the apostles' teaching, contrary to the message of the gospel, contrary to the truth. It literally is the word antithesis. It means to stand against the gospel premise in this case. In this case, it means Paul's preaching and teaching. What's being condemned is false knowledge of men. This means people who say they're telling you the truth, but they are in fact lying to you. And so what is Paul's charge to Timothy? Take all the empty, take all the meaningless, Take all the empty, meaningless voices and walk away. Walk away. Turn around. Paul knew much of what poses as true knowledge isn't true at all. Well, what if the source is educated people, scholarly people, expert people? The charge is strong. Turn away. Do not embrace their views, refute their views, reject their false philosophies, false psychology, pseudoscience, false religion. Does this mean that Christians plead guilty to the charge of blind faith, mindless devotion, anti-intellectualism, or anti-science? Maybe some do, but you don't have to. Your faith is not mindless or meaningless. It's rooted and grounded in a historical event. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Christians don't claim to know everything about everything. But Christians do claim that the revelation of God in Christ Jesus is true. The Christian does claim that what the Bible says about Jesus, what the Bible says about the sinful condition of humanity, what the Bible says concerning the remedy that if you will turn from your sin and trust by faith that Jesus is Lord, you will leave darkness and enter light. You will leave death and enter life. The Bible says that scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that it is sufficient for the Christ follower. It provides complete, sufficient information. William MacDonald writes, quote, 
actually no true findings of science will ever contradict the Bible because the secrets of science were placed in the universe by the same one who wrote the Bible, God himself. But many so-called facts of science are in reality nothing but unproved theories. Any such hypothesis which contradicts the Bible should be rejected, unquote. I've told you the story of my friend who went to medical school, became a doctor, and then discovered, I, I hate working with sick people. <laughs> That's what doctors do. They work with sick people. I said, what did you do? He goes, I went back to school and I got an earned PhD in pathology. Why? I, I'm okay with dead tissue. Dead tissue's easy to deal with. I said, out of all of the dead tissue that you've ever dealt with, out of, out of all of the cadavers you've ever opened, out of all of the dead things and people that you've dealt with, how many of them came back to life? He said, not one. I said, are you a Christian? He said, yes. I said, why? Why in the world would you be a Christian? All of your scientific training tells you that the dead never, no, never, ever come back to life. And he said, I believe by faith that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he's going to raise me back to life. Paul knew apostates would come from within the ranks of the church. High profile believers would suggest that the Bible isn't really true or it doesn't really mean what it says. Paul says by professing it, verse 21, by professing what false science, false knowledge, empty voices, some have strayed from the faith. But there's a hint of hope in that statement. Some have strayed from the faith concerning the faith. There's a hint that the one who strays might be persuaded to return the one who strays might come home. How many stories have you heard about people who said, you know, I used to be a Christian. I used to believe all of that nonsense. I used to read the Bible. I used to go to church, but that's not for me. Some have been seduced by sexual brokenness. Some have been seduced by materialism, rationalism, communism, socialism, skepticism, scientism, liberalism, every other corrosive philosophical disease that affects the mind and the soul, the things that harden the heart and provide welcome blinders so the infected recipient doesn't have to look at Jesus. But the moment you do, the moment you lift your head from the darkness and the emptiness and the doubt and the skepticism and you look full in the face of Jesus and you look at him on the cross and you see him die for your sin and you remind yourself that he rose from the dead, you can come back. Have you lost your way? Have you taken a path that has left you with open sores, deep depression, lingering doubt? 
Don't waste your time anymore on false teaching and false teachers. It's not too late. Turn around. Go back to the path marked faith. Paul closes with his trademark, grace be with you, amen. By the way, that's not just a Bible way of saying goodbye. You began in grace. You continue in grace. You conclude in grace. Amazing grace. Sufficient grace. Paul has given us so much to think about. Correct, incorrect teaching. Deal lovingly and fairly with everyone in the church. The church isn't a a simple social club. It's not just simply a cultural institution. The church is the place where Jesus is worshipped, where the saints grow, where sinners are saved, where we can divide the sorrow, where we can share the joy. Remember Paul's charge to Timothy. Stay true to Jesus. Promote Jesus. Refuse pride. Resist legalism and false doctrine. Trust the Lord. Do good. And you'll have everything that you need to be healthy and holy. Lord, we pray that, Lord, we would begin to understand we are men and women who love the truth. We're not anti-intellectual. We're not anti-science. We believe that there is such a thing as the truth. We believe that the Bible is a revelation of the truth. And because God, who knows everything, has kept the writers of the Bible from error that Lord we have permission to reject speculation insufficient evidence that doesn't deserve our allegiance Lord I pray for every man and every woman who's bought into the idea that what the Bible says can't be true. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that the Bible is true and everything that it says, and most certainly in what it says about our human condition and how Jesus has come into the world to save sinners, Paul wrote in in this very book, to save sinners of whom he was chief. And so, Lord, it's with a renewed optimism and confidence that, Lord, we're going to partake in communion here in just a moment. And so, Lord, again, prepare our hearts. Remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, let us use this time to renew our commitment to you. In Jesus' name, amen.